If you haven't already, would you turn with me in your Bible to Colossians chapter 2 this morning. Colossians 2, we're going to be considering the first seven verses here. Let's begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 2. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Though I'm absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding and thanksgiving. Would you pray with me, asking that God would cause his word to be fruitful in our lives this morning? Father, we thank you for the great assurance of knowing that as we gather here this morning, that it has done so in response to what you have already done for us. That we are here in response to Christ. That we are here in response to who he is, what he has done, and what he's proclaimed. Lord, that we, banner, we gather this morning under a, a banner of grace, a banner of announced mercy and pardon and reconciliation, a banner that proclaims great hope for sinners. Father, we pray that you would cause all that is revealed in your word, all that is revealed in your Son, to be made plain before us this morning. We're asking that you would do so, not merely by just the arranging of words and the ordering of logic and the completion of one thought into another, but Lord, you would do this by the power of your own Spirit. Lord, we need your Holy Spirit to help us. We need your Spirit to give us soft hearts, hearts of meekness that would be able to receive the implanted Word for the salvation of our souls. We need your Spirit to illuminate your Word and help us to see the truths that are here because, Lord, we confess we're peering into a mystery, this mystery of God that is most certainly Christ. And so help us. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Give us the sort of will and the sort of desire that wants to respond with glad adoration, that we would have that same testimony, that we are a church that abounds in thanksgiving for what you have done and what you're doing in our midst, we pray. Amen. It was in reading C.S. Lewis that I first encountered the term chronological snobbery. That's one you tend to remember. It's a phrase that he often used in his writings, uh, in his lectures, to describe the mistaken assumption that the modern is better than the ancient. It's the sort of attitudes that believes the ideas, the philosophies, the priorities, and the manner of life that was in the past is far inferior to those of the present day. It's the sort of snobbery that says, well, that was back then. 
But this is now. And within the culture of this particular church, Colossae, there was a similar problem. Now, certainly the motive and the exact context were different than what Lewis was writing of in his day, but it was the same ultimate error at the end of the day. To grow in knowledge and experience must mean doing something different than you once did. In a sense, what worked back then certainly can't work now. The false teachers at Colossae claimed that Christians can most certainly experience a heightened and more powerful experience with God, but they would need to make some needed changes to their approach. The essence of the false teaching that was kind of this rising groundswell there was that Christ was certainly central. Nobody was designing that. And that Christ was certainly necessary. Nobody was denying that. But that there were, most certainly, supplementary efforts, supplementary teaching, supplementary experiences that were necessary for the full experience of Christ. Chapter 2, we just began reading, confronts this heresy head on, showing that the work of Christ on behalf of his people is most certainly sufficient and that the person of Christ is far better than any Jewish or pagan ritual that these false teachers would seek to bring in and supplement the faith of these believers. But instead of embracing a teaching that's, that's grounded and that's centered on Christ here, the Colossians are faced with this, this threat of believing a message that's ultimately a, 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 a gruesome distortion of the gospel and that is ultimately void of Christ. You can hear it in the concern of Paul as he writes in verse 4, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. And what would Paul write to the churches in America today? What would he say to our church? What would he say to you? What if a bit of this chronological snobbery has snuck into the way that we evaluate our spiritual disciplines? The way even that we order and prioritize our week? The way that we give counsel to one another and say, this is what you need to do. Is it possible that there's some sort of snobbish assumption that the way we began is not sufficient for the way we go forward? It's from this sort of mistaken teaching that Paul expresses not only his concern for these faithful saints, but he gives to them a charge in going forward. Let's look back at verse 1 and listen to the concerns that are upon Paul's mind. He says in verse 1, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who've not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. 
prosper. Though I'm absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Now keep in mind that these these first five verses here in chapter 2 are really a part of a larger section that goes back to chapter 1, verse 24. And if you skim through these verses, you notice how Paul moves from the, the broad to the narrow. He moves from more general into very personal. Because at the end of chapter 1, he's speaking about the mystery of Christ. He's talking about the message of Christ is what he's proclaiming. And that specifically that he's warning and teaching everyone that he may present everyone mature in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 1, he wants them to know, but this struggle and toil is not simply for the universal church Everywhere, he assures them in verse 1 that his struggle is for their local assembly as well. Even though I have not seen you face to face, I want you to know that I'm struggling for you. That this effort, my desire, is not just for everyone generically, but for you in Colossae. And for your brothers and sisters in Laodicea as well. Okay, so what sort of concerns are upon Paul's mind? The first one would be a concern for edification. Keep chapter 1, 28, 29 in view, remembering that Paul's goal is to present everyone mature in Christ. And maturity is not simply a head filled with biblical doctrine, but doctrine that cultivates faithfulness and fruitfulness that's ultimately pleasing to the Lord. What has Paul already said? Look back at verse 9 of chapter 1. And So, from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. His concern is not just bare knowledge. It's not just raw material of understanding, but the sort of doctrine, the sort of understanding, the sort of knowledge that actually promotes a walk that is worthy of the Lord. That is consistent with who the Lord is. That you would look at and not see some great inconsistency and say, Well, that knowledge doesn't align with that Lord. But the sort of knowledge and understanding that cultivates the fruitfulness and faithfulness that says, ah, that's pleasing to the Lord, because that's in line with who the Lord is. It's in that sense that Paul is saying, I have great concern for your edification. And he unpacks this a bit further in chapter 2, verse 2. Notice he's thinking about three specific areas of their spiritual maturity. That they would be encouraged and comforted. He mentions that they would be knit together in love. And then thirdly, that they would have a full assurance of the wealth and wisdom and knowledge that's found in Christ. My concern is for your edification. He doesn't want to see them discouraged, uncertain, spiritually wavering. But he wants to see them pressing forward, onward, confident in God's gracious ability to sustain and keep them. He he doesn't want to see the church severed and fractured by selfish ambition, but he wants to see them knit together, united in love. 
bound together as members of Christ's household of God, seeing one another as brother and sister in Christ. And he doesn't want to see them doubting the sufficiency of Christ. He's thinking that they're thinking in their mind that there must be some other method or there must be some other program. There must be some other experience or ritual or secret that is holding me back from vibrant Christian living. He says, no, I want you to have the full assurance of the wealth and the wisdom that's found in Christ. It's no wonder that the concern for every church's edification is a primary emphasis of Scripture. This is not just a one-off consideration of Paul. It's woven throughout our New Testament that there is a continual concern for the church of God to be edified, to be strengthened, to be encouraged. So this is what we mean when we talk about healthy churches. When we talk about sound doctrine, when we talk about growing in godliness as God's people, seeking to encourage one another in spiritual truth, seeking to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, while aiming for a greater grasp of the person and ministry of Christ, it sums up much of what a healthy church is doing, of what they're pursuing. And to make it more specific, it's what a healthy church member is pursuing as well. Think about the book of Hebrews and the way that Paul, the author of Hebrews, whoever it may be, works his way through this. That the considerate church member is looking around for someone to encourage. Looking around for someone that I can strengthen, that I can build up, that I can edify. There's a number of examples that are mentioned there in that in that chapter of chapter 12, looking around for hands that are, that are drooping down, whose knees have, have become weak. We say, let me strengthen you. Sometimes spiritually, that, that physical example just sums up a spiritual experience, doesn't it? That their physical posture reveals what's happening inside their soul. Hands that are just hanging down. Knees that are a little weak. Say, let me encourage you. Let me strengthen you. Or anyone, looking around for anyone where the the root of bitterness has begun to take root. And we say, brother, sister, let me encourage you. Let me exhort you according to the wisdom and the goodness of Scripture. I see this root of bitterness that seems to be growing there. Let's consider who God is. Let's consider his goodness, authority, and power. Let's consider his mercy and sovereignty. Let's consider what he's given us in his grace. Anyone who's begun to succumb to sexual immorality. We're looking around to exhort them and to warn them. You're thinking like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. Don't do that. Looking for anyone who just needs to be reminded and encouraged to run with endurance the race that's set before him. We say, look to Jesus. He's the author and founder, the perfecter of our faith. These are just some of the examples given there of what it means to look around to seek to edify the church of God. We can take the example of David, his dear friend Jonathan, and how he treated David. Because at that one particular moment in David's life where he was alone in the wilderness, running from King Saul, being hunted like a dog, what do we read? That Jonathan rose 
and went to David and strengthened his hand in God. That's the sort of edification that's on Paul's mind, and he had a deep concern for the edification of these saints. But he also had another concern. It was the concern over deception. Verse 4 tells us that Paul's concern for their edification in Christ has everything to do with warding off the threat of deceptive false teaching. Why is he working so hard? Why is he laboring? Why is he toiling? What is this struggle for them that he's talking about, ensuring that they're encouraged, united in love, and holding fast to the wealth of riches that are in Christ? Because they are... There's, at the same time, concerted efforts by well-spoken teachers seeking to lead them astray. His concern here is specifically to lay hold of, what does he say, wisdom and knowledge that are in Christ. He's not just pulling metaphors out of the air. He knows something specific that is happening in this city, threatening this church. The wisdom and knowledge that he's speaking of that are found in Christ are to be laid alongside in contrast to the appearance of wisdom that these false teachers are propagating. Now, Paul's not arguing against the study of philosophy or the art of argument, but he's warning against the uncritical adoption of a philosophy that's at odds with Christ. What sounds really convincing? It's probably true, because he's pretty passionate about what he's saying, and he knows, I think, more about the scriptures than I do. He has three points. They rhyme. There's verses attached to them. I think this is true. It's the sort of plausible arguments that you could be so easily deluded by. Notice how this unpacks in all of chapter 2, what Paul has in mind about the wisdom and knowledge that are in Christ in contrast to the appearance of wisdom that they're hearing about. Verse 8, look down. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Verse 18. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. And skip down to 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teaching, verse 23, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom. In promoting self-made religion and asceticism, Severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So here's the real issue. Do you actually want the appearance of wisdom or actual wisdom? Do you want the hologram or the substance? Do you want 
something that actually will deal with the corrupting effects of sin and the indulgence of the flesh, or to be deluded into thinking that all your energy and efforts are doing something when they're really not. Christian, which one do you want? Real wisdom, or something that looks like wisdom, makes you feel like you're doing something, but at the end of the day, not helpful. These Christians at this church in Colossae, they had a desire for maturity. And their desire for maturity and to experience vital faith, that's a good desire. Their desire to put sin to death, that's a good desire. Their desire to grow in wisdom and knowledge, good desire. But there's a movement afoot and a sort of teaching that is becoming popular, Paul says, that looks and sounds so convincing to, the, to answer the very things you want that it looks like the key and the lock, like these should just go together. The very thing that I'm seeking, look what they're selling. And he's saying, stop. I'm concerned that you may be deluded into believing that these things are of actual substance when they're just an appearance of wisdom and actually of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. It's absolutely worthless and unable to accomplish what you hoped it would. We know how this works. It's the similar sort of delusion that sells hyped-up products that are just now abandoned on the shelves of thrift stores that once were all the rage. From the thigh master that promised it would help you lose weight, to the swing jacket that promised it would fix that horrible slice in your swing, to the 90-day to the real estate strategy that would ensure your luxurious retirement, all of them over-promising, under-delivering. They all had the appearance of wisdom but they actually have no value in delivering what they promised. And now, I've been deluded. Don't be deluded by these persuasive arguments that overpromise and underdeliver. Paul is certain here, as he says, that maintaining doctrinal order, the order of their faith, means that their faith in Christ will be stable, which leads to verses 6 and 7. Because there's not only a concern that he gives to them, there's an actual charge that he exhorts them in. Look at the therefore in verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. These two verses actually summarize well the entire letter. If you wanted to kind of boil down and distill Colossians into just one or two verses, verses 6 and 7 would kind of get you in a good direction, really at the heart of the exhortation of Paul and the concern for their spiritual well-being. In fact, verse 6 is actually really the hinge which this entire section swivels upon. Everything that he's been saying about Christ his ministerial labors, maturity in Christ, the concern for them. Verse 6 is kind of this hinge in which the rest of chapter 2 then folds down underneath. 
That's what we're going to look at in the next two weeks. What are these specific concerns, Paul, that have to do with the concern of this false teaching? What Paul's doing here is he's saying because of who Christ is, because of the energy and focus of his ministry, and because of the pressing danger of this false teaching, keep going in the direction and according to the pattern that you've been given. What he does in 6 and 7 is there's really a couple of parallel lines of thought in these two verses that are essentially saying the same thing, underscoring the same exhortation, just saying it two different ways, emphasizing it in slightly different manner. But they're both emphasizing the same thing, that growth in Christ will not come by abandoning the means by which you first came to Christ, nor the substance of what drew you to Christ. This is really just a direct pushback against the false teachers. And if you're noticing, it's actually the first command that's given in this letter. The first command, so walk in him. As you've received him, so walk in him. What Paul is doing here is making a point through stressing making a comparison of the then and the now. Notice how the language of the the tense of the language shifts from the past to the present to make a point. Do you read your Bible in this way? Good. (laughs) Notice tenses of words. We were just in the past, now we're in the present. We were plural, now we're singular. There's a contrast, a conjunction. Those structural elements are so helpful in getting at not what I think this passage means, but what did Paul say this actually meant? Notice the change of tense. It's explicitly clear in the New American Standard. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Having been firmly rooted, now built up and established in Him. As you were taught, go on abounding in thanksgiving. This past to present emphasis is the point in what Paul is driving at. He's making his point by emphasizing continuity. By emphasizing the continuity of their past experience with their present living. What was it then? Keep doing that now. What was it then? Keep doing that now. And the direct correction against the false teaching that is around them is to do that. And it could be summarized really in two exhortations. A charge to keep walking as you began. That's the first exhortation here. It's verse 6. A charge to keep walking as you began. What do you mean, Paul? Well, keep walking in the manner in which you received him. And what was the manner in which you received Christ? Go back to chapter 1, verse 4. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith, In Christ Jesus. 
Keep walking in the manner in which you received him, the manner of faith. And what is faith in Christ? Baptist Catechism, question 91, helps us answer that well. Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. Faith is when we rest and receive upon Christ alone as he's offered to us in the gospel. So faith in Christ, then, is to be the defining mark of a Christian from the time of new birth to last breath. That does not go away. Faith in Christ is not the juvenile stair step that that's what gets you in, and now you move on from that. Keep walking in the manner in which you began, Colossians. We've heard of your faith in Christ since you first came to trust in him. Keep having faith in Christ. That is the defining mark of the child of God. Faith in the Son of God. Keep walking in the manner in which you received him. But you could emphasize another word to make the same point. Keep walking in the manner that you received him. Who's him? Well, notice what Paul says about him. He could have said Savior. He could have said Reconciler. He could have said Messiah. He could have said Son of God. He said Christ Jesus the Lord. Keep walking in the manner that you received Christ Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus the Lord. Just meditate on each of those terms. And what was the ways that I received Christ? Well, you received the whole Christ in his person as the God-man, the promised rescuer, the anointed prophet, priest, king. You received him as Jesus. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The rescuer. The substitute, the one who would reconcile God's people to himself. You received him as this one who is Lord. Because you recognize he's the rightful ruler having full authority and worthy of all our adoration. That all creation was formed by him and for him. You received Christ Jesus the Lord. As you received him, keep walking in him. This is how you began Colossians, don't deviate from this course. Keep walking, keep living in that way. Think back on your own testimony. What drew you to Christ? How did your relationship with sin change because of Christ? How did the way that you see yourself and your purpose in life, how did that change? And what, a, what was it that you heard of Christ that provoked that change? What was it that brought you to that place where you recognized, maybe not in these exact words, but I'm a great sinner, he's a great savior. Keep walking in that manner that you received Christ. Or have you somehow deluded yourself into thinking that you must move on from matters of faith and repentance, grace, mercy? Have you convinced yourself that you've grown so wise that you actually need God's wisdom less now than you did last year or five years ago or 30 years ago? 
I mean, certainly when I was a new Christian, I was just a mess, and I didn't know anything, and I needed God's wisdom. But now, I mean, look at me. Friend, you're deluded. That somehow you need God less now than you did before? That's inconsistent with everything we hear in the Scriptures. But that was the essence of the false teaching that was corrupting the Colossian church. And could we be honest? It still seeks to seep into our own lives. That somehow I need him less. And I'm frustrated when I see my great need for him. Because certainly I should be less dependent upon Christ. It doesn't sound sensible when we say it out loud, does it? But we believe it so often. Are you so foolish? Having begun in the spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? And that was Paul's concern for the Galatian church as well. Brothers and sisters, keep walking as you began. Don't ever allow your breadth or depth of biblical doctrine deviate you from the manner in which you received Christ. Grow in the breadth, the height, the depth, the width, the understanding, the love of God in Christ. Press into that. But that never moves you away from the manner in which you received it initially. Don't ever believe that growing in breadth and depth of biblical doctrine will somehow move you away from foundational doctrine. The same themes, the same images, the same promises should not be growing smaller in our rearview mirror as we progress in Christ. They should actually be in front of us, filling our horizons, growing larger and clearer as we approach glory. That's where they belong. In the same manner that you received him, keep walking. Did you begin by hearing of Christ as this one who's the great reconciler? Then go forward. Press in. Mind the depths and meditate upon the atoning work of Christ who is priest, who reconciles us and presents us to God as holy and acceptable. Did you begin by hearing of this Christ who has this great authority, who rules the world? Then go forward in that same manner, mining out the storehouses of treasure that show Christ to be our king, who convinces, subdues, rules, sustains, delivers, and preserves us. Did you begin by hearing of this Christ and the power of his word? His word that convicted you? His word that revealed the truth about who you are? That comforted you? Telling you you the great assurance of forgiveness of sin? Then go forward in that same manner, exploring the vast riches of Christ who is our, our prophet, who speaks to us in our ignorance and patiently teaches us and encourages us to grow. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Keep walking as you began. He says the same thing, but in a different way. Not only keep walking as you began, but in verse 7, keep building as you began. Here in verse 7, Paul speaks of being rooted and built up, being established in the faith. By these metaphors, he's speaking of that secure and satisfied state that every Christian abides in. As you read your Bibles, you'll find that God's people are often compared to trees in Scripture. That's one image that we're given. Trees of righteousness that are planted in the Lord. 
that their root is in Christ, who is the fountain of living water. And as he is the fountain of living water, he ensures that all of his trees bear fruit. Even circumstantially, when things may be dry, their roots grow down deep. They're planted by streams of water. They bear fruit in season, and all they do prospers. These are the righteous trees of the Lord that are rooted in living water, that are rooting in Christ, and in him we abide and we drive all of our life, all of our nourishment, all of our faithfulness, all of our vigor because we are rooted in him. Sometimes the Bible speaks of God's people, specifically in the New Testament, as compared to a building. Not just a tree, but sometimes the image is that of a structure, a house a temple, a habitation for God. And Christ is the sure foundation upon which this house is built and that we are safe and secure upon. And it's upon this foundation in this house that God's people are being fit together like living stones into a holy temple built for His glory. So Paul draws these images to charge these believers to keep building as they began. The sure foundation that they're rooted upon and built upon is to remain as they further seek to build. It's not as though you began in a foundation and you say like, all right, now let's start building over here. The foundation that you were established and rooted upon, keep strengthening, keep building, keep growing in that, established in your faith. Think of the contrast of what Paul would write to the church at Ephesus. Instead of being like children that are just tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine, he's essentially telling the Colossian Christians the same thing. Keep abiding in sound doctrine and the faithful teaching that you've received from faithful ministers of Christ. Epaphras being one of those faithful pastors to them. Same thing, said two different ways, pointing at the same exhortation. Don't deviate from the course. Don't abandon the foundation. Don't pull up roots and begin to think, I can just plant these somewhere else. Keep going as you began. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, but you're hearing about how all these Christians are supposed to live, we would want to tell you that the foundation that you're hearing about for Christian living, it's the same foundation that Christ calls you to trust in. It's not like there's a Christian way of doing things. And then once you, you know, just start out, here's your little foundation, and then we'll graduate you to the real foundation. These same foundations are the same, is the same foundation that Christ calls all sinners to put their hope and rest upon by repenting of all other false hopes. Believing that there's some other thing that you can build your life upon that will endure. Some other means or tool or program or experience that will give you a sense of purpose and vitality. The Bible tells you to repent of all of those other things apart from Christ because he is the only one that endures and that lasts. And to then rest upon him because he's sufficient. He is the one who satisfies. He is the one who stabilizes our lives. Church, the clear teaching of this portion of scripture, it's, it's right before us in the letter this morning. It's a concern for edified churches. It's a concern for churches and Christians being built up in their faith, united in love, laying hold of all the treasures that are found in Christ. It's a charge to keep going as we began, to not deviate from the course, wrongly thinking that we must, okay, lay aside kind of the basics and the foundations 
But now we're going to get down to it. Keep going as you began. Now, in saying all of this, have you thought about what sort of church, what sort of Christian is in most danger of becoming deluded by the false teaching that was invading Colossae? Who's most in danger of falling prey to this? Maybe you'd think, well, it's probably the new Christian. Inexperienced, freshly converted, probably fall prey to such an error. Or maybe you would think it only applies to the superficial Christian. You know, the one that's allergic to expositional preaching and it has anemia towards robust sound doctrine. That's the one. That's who is going to fall to this. That's not the conditions of Colossae. Read all four chapters. This was a group of faithful saints that wanted to deal with sin, to stop the indulgence of the flesh. This was a church who was wanting to grow in wisdom, wanting to grow in knowledge, understood that growth and godliness is not an option, but defining mark. That means that their problem here at Colossae was not superficiality. It was not apathy. It was not immaturity. It was not worldliness that plagued them. It was the delusion of false teaching that held the appearance of wisdom but was ultimately of no value. Because this was a church that had a history of faithful teaching. Paul speaks highly of Epaphras, who labored in ministry, praying for them. This was a church that wanted more biblical wisdom, but was mistaken in how they would lay hold of it. The danger that this applies to is the sort of church that wants spiritual growth, that wants biblical knowledge, that wants to grow in Christ. To put it plainly, the danger that's described here in these verses applies to the church who wants the right thing, but obtaining it the wrong way. That's who's in danger. We need to take the warning and exhortation to heart. Wanting the right things, even godly things, even biblical things, is so essential. But that's not the totality of what we're given in Scripture. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Rooted, built up in Him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So let's go on together. As we have received him, let's continue to live and walk in him, rooted and established in Christ, built up and established in the faith, overflowing with gratitude and thanksgiving. We begin and we end in the same things. Let's pray that God would keep us faithful to that. Lord Jesus, we look to you who is revealed so plainly as Christ, Jesus the Lord. That you are the Messiah, the anointed one that's been sent by the Father to rescue your people. That you are 
most certainly Yeshua, the one who rescues his people from their sins, and that you are Adonai, you are the Lord. You are the one who holds all authority over all things, all things created by you and for you. And because of who you are, we bow ourselves before you this morning. Lord, we pray that you would guard us from the sense of arrogance, the sense of pride, the sort of snobbery that says we must alter our course if we really want to grow. Lord, would you cause us to see, not only today, but for all our days, every day that you give us breath, the glorious way that you've called us to yourself is the way that we continue. Lord, may we be a people who are grounded in the gospel, who are grounded in Christ. And Lord, we don't want to just stay in elementary principles. We do want to lay hold of all the riches that are found in your Son. For all wisdom and all knowledge, Lord, they are there. There's a storehouse of of riches found in Christ. We want to grow in the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth. Not moving away, but moving into. So, Father, help us to see more of Christ. Help us to see who He is, and would you shape our lives accordingly that the faithfulness and fruitfulness that's born from sound doctrine would grow up and bear good fruit in our lives, and that it would most certainly be done with an overflowing sense of thanksgiving, that we would continue to be a people marked by great joy, not simply only for the earthly pleasures that you give to us and joy as your people that you've called good, but ultimately for the joy that's found in redemption the joy that's found in sin forgiven. Lord, guard us and keep us from anything that would delude us or deviate us from this. Ground us and grow us in Christ, we pray. Amen.